Welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell. In the first part of this month's podcast, our science team discussed conflicts of interest, particularly focusing on medicine and science. Now we have senior science writer Christy Eschwanden interviewing ProPublica senior reporter Charles Ornstein, who has worked on ProPublica's Dollars for Docs project, which catalogs money that doctors receive from pharmaceutical and medical device companies. Enjoy. Charles, welcome to Sparks. Thanks, Christy. So nice to have you here. And this is kind of an exciting day, right? We just had a new data dump this morning. Yes, indeed. We we got a, our first glimpse at how much money drug and device companies paid doctors in 2016. So tell me a little bit about that. What did you find? Well, so every year now for the past few years, the government has been requiring all drug and device companies to report their payments to doctors and to teaching hospitals. And the grand unveiling uh, is on June 30th. And so what what we've learned is that many, many doctors receive payments. This year, as in the past two years, more than 600,000 doctors and more than 1,000 teaching hospitals have been reported to have received payments. This year, all told, including research payments, there were more than $8 billion paid out to hospitals and physicians. And just in the terms of the types of payments that we're all more familiar with, the payments like meals and promotional speeches and consulting arrangements. In that area, there was way more than $2 billion spent just last year. Wow, that seems like a lot. That seems like a lot. I want to back up for a minute, though, and start with maybe a basic question. And then let's go back to those open payments in a minute. But how should we define conflict of interest? I think that it's one of those things that the word gets thrown around a lot, but what do we really mean when we say that? It's a great question, and, and it does get thrown around a lot, and in some ways it loses its meaning. I think, you know, everybody, anybody that's alive has some conflict of interest, meaning that they have something that may be pulling them in a different direction from doing what is in, you know, the best interest of their job or of their family or something else. So, for example, if you're a doctor and you're paid by an insurance company based on the services you perform. You may have a conflict in the sense that you are paid more if you do more services. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, every doctor who works with an insurance company has that as a conflict of interest. But it's something that we have to keep in mind as we uh, approach our jobs, as we approach other people and their jobs, and just understanding what may be pulling them in different directions. Mm -hmm. So I've also often seen this distinction made between a quote, potential conflict of interest and an actual one. There's a really interesting editorial in this drama special issue that basically argued that there are no potential conflicts of interest. And in fact, here I'm going to read a quote. The notion of a potential conflict of interest reflects the mistaken view that a conflict of interest exists only when bias or harm actually occurs. I wanted to, to get your take on this. Do you, do you agree with that kind of reasoning? I think that's right. I think that the term conflict of interest, although some people use it in an extremely negative context, context, I think it, it's really just an explanation that people have interests that pull them in different directions. And it's not a potential interest. It's an actual interest. And sometimes, like we talked about, it can be financial. Sometimes it can be a religious belief. Sometimes it can be just something else that, that, that leads them to potentially or want to act in a different way. Mm-hmm. So very often what we see is that transparency is proposed as a solution to conflict of, of interest issues. But I'm wondering, how far does transparency really 
get us. Have you seen any evidence that this really makes a difference? Uh, I think it's we're still a little bit too early to know. If you look at the past three years' worth of data that's been released from under the open payment system, we see a very similar number of payments and of physicians receiving payments from one year to the next. We also see that doctors come in and out of receiving payments. So doctors who may have received a payment in 2014, some of those did not receive a payment in 2015. And so it's not as if we're seeing that transparency has had a chilling effect where it has led to a decline in payments or that the number of physicians receiving them has gone down. I know that some people have been worried that when you publicize this and make make this available, that it will cause people to try to turn away from interactions with industry. On a top line basis, we have not seen that happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit too early because we do need to study it. Now, as far as has it changed behavior, has it changed the way that people practice medicine or the way in which patients pick their doctors? I know anecdotally, which is, again, anecdotes, that we've heard from individual patients saying this has mattered a lot to them, that having the ability to look up their doctor, especially when they have questions about the treatment they're receiving, has caused them to make a different decision about their care. But I think by and large, people trust their doctors. And I think having this information out there isn't changing that trust that they have. Many people don't care. They're not going to look it up Mm -hmm. even with it being available. But for people who do care and who are curious, it's nice to have that information there. Mm -hmm. So why should people care about conflicts of interest? What what is the danger here? I think that the risk is that your doctor will prescribe you something or use a medical device for you that isn't necessarily warranted or that may be more expensive than other products that Mm -hmm. could be used for you. uh, And that that cost is not only going to be eaten up by the system, meaning your employer or insurance plan or the government if you're on Medicare, but you'll have to pay more for it out of pocket. And more than that, you know this, I know this, new products, new drugs, new devices carry with them risks because they haven't been tested in real life on the market. And so if you're prescribed a new product that hasn't gotten a full vetting beyond the clinical trials, you may be exposing yourself to additional risks beyond taking a drug that people have decades of experience using that may be less expensive. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you really want to know at the end of the day, right, that your doctor has your best interests at heart and, and not someone else's interests, right? I want to talk a little bit here, though, about the subtlety of how conflicts of interest often play out in real life. You know, we so often, I think there's kind of this almost a caricature when we think of this as like a quid pro quo sort of of problem, you know, where someone's being paid to do a particular thing. But so often in real life, it seems sort of more insidious, right? Well, I mean, look, it's illegal in medicine for a drug company or a device company to pay you what's called a kickback, which is money that they give to you in exchange for you using their product. That's illegal. And so these arrangements are much more subtle than that. And they are legal uh, in most cases. Certainly, you have some companies that have paid the government large fines because they've crossed the line. But I think by and large, both doctors and companies want to do things on the up and up. They're not looking to take a kickback. That said, you know, there's a whole range of payments that take place. There's some doctors that get a $12 meal over the course of one year. That's it. And there's other doctors who literally get hundreds of thousands of dollars in payments and where on the majority of days they're doing something that earns them a payment and on a minority of days they're not. We have some doctors that we've seen where 
on at least 200 days a year, they're earning payments from drug and device companies. Right. And this is coming from your Dollars for Docs database too, right? I want to talk about about that a little bit. Sure, Um, yeah. Can you just tell me the the genesis of that project? Sure. So back in 2009, drug companies were being sued by whistleblowers and beginning to settle those lawsuits. And as a condition of settling those lawsuits, the federal government intervened and the companies agreed that they would begin disclosing for the very first time the amount of money that they paid individual physicians and that they would make these disclosures publicly on their websites. And this was a big deal because this had been a huge black box of medicine forever. And so we thought, maybe foolishly at first, we're like, oh, that's this is great. We'll ask the drug companies um, if they can not only, sh- if they can just share their information in an easy to sort manner because their websites included PDFs and you had to click through different links for different quarters. We thought this is really hard. If you're, if you're a patient, the idea that you're going to click through to different drug companies' websites and find the sub, sub, sub website that includes this information and click through four different pages, like it seemed a little bit unreasonable. So we're like, it would be great to create a central repository. So we asked the drug companies, we said, could you give us this information? And they're like, absolutely not. And so (laughs) we viewed that as a challenge. And working with Mm -hmm. our news application developers, it was a fellow named Dan Wen. He decided that he was going to scrape this information. And this was the beginning of a long love affair, I guess, (laughs) that ProPublica has had with this topic in the sense that we created our first tool called Dollars for Docs in 2010, and we've been updating it ever since. And so the first payments that the government released were in 2014, and now that represents the bulk of what you can see on our website. Um, Mm -hmm. We certainly have – we captured the historical archive of every company that was required to disclose under previous government settlements, and that's the historical information, and we've kept track of this going forward. And our goal is to make this accessible in a way that is sort of more user-friendly than the government's website. Right, right. So you've you've had this for a while now. What what kinds of lessons have come out of this Dollars for Docs project? Are there some sort of big picture things that you've seen, problems, issues, things like that? Well, one of the things that we decided to do was take a look at both the amount of money that doctors receive, but also the types of drugs that they prescribe. So sort of an Mm -hmm. outgrowth of our Dollars for Docs project was this question that my colleague Tracy Weber and I had, which was, you know, it's it's all well and good if a doctor receives a payment from industry, but does this affect the choices they make in terms of the drugs they prescribe? Because you can have a doctor who's getting money who is prescribing just like other doctors. And you could have a doctor who is right. not getting money who's prescribing really poorly. And that money is not the be-all, end-all, and it is not sort of a proxy for good or bad prescribing. So we put in a request with the government for data about prescribing in the government's Medicare Part D program. And Medicare is the program mm-hmm. for seniors and disabled people. And the government agreed to give this to us. And so we created a tool called Prescriber Checkup that lets you look up your doctor. And just like in Dollar for Docs, where you'd see the payments, in this case, you'd see the drugs they prescribed and how those compare to peers. So now we have this amazing opportunity because here you have all of these payments that doctors received and you have all of this information on their prescribing to tens of millions of people in Medicare and you could begin combining this information, which, by the way, is a lot harder in in right. practice than <laughs> it, it is in theory, easy, but, it's but like it's great for one yeah. sentence. So we combine this information and we began noticing really interesting things. So we ran a piece last year where we found that 
if a doctor gets payments from industry, he or she is more likely to prescribe more brand name medications than a doctor who does not. And in fact, there was almost a dose-response relationship where the more money a doctor got, the more brand name drugs on average he or she oh, prescribed. That's fascinating. Fascinating. And, and I think that the next challenge in one that we're working on now is to begin looking at it on a drug by drug level to see mm-hmm. if those same associations are in place, which is not to say that, you know, one causes the other. We don't know that. Um, but it is to say that as you begin looking at this, you begin to see that there's some relationship, which stands to reason, right? Why would the industry spend this much money if it wasn't affecting anything? And we're not looking at cause and effect, but it makes sense that we would see an association as well. Right. No, absolutely. And they're they're not going to spend that kind of money if it's it's not doing something for them, or at least they believe that it is. And one thing that's always fascinated me, I know there's been some studies looking at, you know, actually asking doctors whether they're influenced and, you know, they will say things like, well, my peers may be, but, but I'm definitely not, right? Like we don't, one thing about conflicts of interest is that they seem to be something that's very difficult to sort of recognize in ourselves, right? We're all just very rational beings that are doing the right thing at every every turning point, you know, we're, we're never conflicted, right? Well, I'm reminded of the studies back a couple decades ago in which doctors were asked if they would practice medicine differently on patients of different races and mm-hmm. where doctors would uniformly say that they would not, that they would treat patients of different races the same. And then there have been a number of studies subsequent to that where they've actually assessed um, how doctors practice medicine and where they've sent dummy patients into doctors' offices, and they found that, indeed, doctors do practice medicine differently. I think this is, in some ways, analogous to that in the sense that no doctor would like to think that anything is going to affect them. They think that they're different. But I think that what we hear from pharmaceutical sales reps that we talk to is that they know it does. Right, right. There's also this thing too, where they really, you know, it's this human relationship thing that happens where, you know, the drug representatives are building relationships with doctors. They're probably stroking their egos a little bit. Yeah, they really target these so-called opinion leaders, right? And so there's kind of almost this prestige that can develop here. And so the doctor may feel like, well, this pharmaceutical company is paying me this, this nice stipend to go to, you know, it's always someplace with a nice beach or, you know, beautiful vacation location, you know, to give, give a talk that, you know, as things that I would say any, any way I, I believe this stuff, they just happen to be paying me, you know, for what I already believe and might already say. And so this sort of gets me to this question, which is sort of like, how do we distinguish between conflicts of interests and sort of alliances between groups or individuals with shared interests? So you have the doctor that says, well, I really like this drug. I use it for my patient. You know, sure, I'll, I'll say something nice about it because I believe in it. Like, how do we sort of distinguish whether that's you know, a problem or not. Well, first, I wanted to correct you on one thing. I I don't think that you see as much of companies taking doctors to these beachy areas or resorts as you once did. I think that pharma has imposed a voluntary code of conduct that all the major drug companies now adhere to, which really limits both the gifts and the luxurious vacations and the, you know, golf outings and the baseball Mm -hmm. games, et cetera, that doctors can go to. They really have to be a bona fide educational experience. So I think that you're seeing less and less of that. But I think your overall question about how do you distinguish between an alliance of interest and a conflict of interest is a really good one. And we hear doctors all the time say, you know, I prescribe this drug because I believe in it and I speak on it. And it's really hard to tease out 
whether or not that's so. One of the interesting things that we did at the very beginning was we decided to look at who were pharma's top paid mm-hmm. speakers and consultants. And what we found was that often these were not the folks who were distinguished professors at universities. They were not the folks who were writing many medical journal articles. So in some cases, they were folks who were not even board certified. And in a number of cases, they were doctors who had been disciplined sometimes for misprescribing drugs. Oh, that's so, fascinating. Um, that was a very early finding that we had was that you know it was not as if the so-called key opinion leaders were necessarily experts in their field. Some were. But many were not. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Those are maybe, you know, going back to the idea of this being something that might make, you know, someone feel chosen or, you know, sort of stroking their ego a little bit. It it might be that someone who's a little less distinguished would be, you know, more ripe for that sort of grooming, I guess. Anyway, I want to talk also about patient groups here because I think that this is another instance where they will sometimes say that, look, we're just, we're just really, we have an alignment of shared interests here that it's not the, you know, we're taking money from this pharmaceutical company because we have the shared goal. We want to have good treatments for people with this disease. You've done some reporting on this with, with patients groups. What have you seen here? Well, we've looked at this in the context of uh, a pain patients group. And what they what we found was that, mm-hmm. you know, um, the alignment of interest was in, um, overhyping the benefits of opioid drugs. This was back a number of years ago and in downplaying the risks. And so they were Mm -hmm. sort of adopting exactly the company line with respect to that and in some ways misleading the public. The particular group we wrote about shut down after our story. Interesting. But I think where you see this really, the rubber is is hitting the road right now, is that number of patient groups that heavily rely on industry funding. They are being... you know, conspicuously silent about the debate about drug prices. So you particularly see this Mm -hmm. um, last year in the context of the EpiPen, that a number of the allergy groups Uh were really quiet on this, even though patients themselves were outraged about the um, cost of the EpiPen. The groups that represented the patients were really not speaking out. Similarly, you see this in the context of some cancer communities, and you also see this in the context of some of the diabetes groups, that when you rely on uh, extensive industry funding to fund a half or more of your budget, you're very careful about biting the hand that feeds you. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering, how should the public and sort of we in the media approach conflicts of interest here? Should having some sort of tie to an interest be enough to sort of discount something? Like, how do we evaluate what what to do about this stuff? Well, I think, you know, Uh, The first thing I would say is that for journalists, it is absolutely essential that if you're quoting somebody about a particular drug, that if the doctor has an interest in that drug or has received a payment relating to that drug, the public needs to know this. And so that is a responsibility that we as journalists should should absolutely be taking to heart. For the public at large, I think, you know – Everybody has their own layer of the way in which this information should be filtered and the way in which they take this information to heart. And I actually think that that's great. I think the people who don't care, Mm -hmm. then don't don't care. You don't need to take it into consideration. I think there are enough people who do care, and that, that group is growing. So you see hospital leaders now care. Employers care. Law enforcement cares about this. The government cares. We even see divorce mm-hmm. lawyers caring, actually, which is a oh, funny that's interesting. Thing. Tell me more about that. <laughs> well, divorce lawyers have told us that they've seen spouses hiding amounts of money that they're getting from speaking to industry, and so they're now oh, uh, using these databases 
just to see how much money that a potential ex-spouse is uh, bringing in from industry. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So having covered conflict of interest from a lot of different angles in medicine, I'm wondering if there's one particular aspect or one kind of conflict that you've, you've seen could be potentially most damaging or worrisome. Well, I think that the conflict that universities and people who study the issue find most troubling to them is promotional talks because these mm-hmm. are speeches that doctors give to their peers in which the slides and materials are prepared by the drug company. They're labeled and classified as marketing talks. Even though the content is often medical in nature, they are mm-hmm. you know, designed and regulated as marketing talks. And while the doctors say that they may believe in the slides, I think there's a concern that you're putting marketing men in white coats and parading them in front of doctors. And this is not me necessarily, but I think that the research institutions and teaching hospitals that have looked at this view this as the most problematic of all interactions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. So is there any sort of gold standard that, that's evolved here for avoiding conflicts of interest? And you know, are there some realistic steps that could be taken here? Well, I think that one of the things that I hear a lot from doctors is that both the government and educational institutions don't spend enough of their own money educating doctors, that it falls mm-hmm. to the pharmaceutical industry, the medical device industry to do this because nobody else is doing it. And if you want a doctor to understand the latest in treatment regimens, that somebody needs to teach them. And so I think that you know people are talking about how do we increase funding to ensure that doctors are up on the latest things. The latest things are not bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, what gets lost in this discussion is when you start to look at this as us versus them or conflicts of interest are bad, you don't recognize that, in fact, the, you know, the advances in medicine are good things. And it's not, this is not a, you know, stay in the 50s versus be in the, in the current day. It's a question of, you know, do, does every patient need the newest and latest? Are the things that should be tried first? And those are where I think the discussions are, how do we help doctors do that sort of balancing test for their patients. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, the sort of the test should be, is this in the patient's best interest, you know, versus are there other interests that are, that are influencing and sort of taking, taking the, the focus off of the patient and onto some other interests, which may not be aligned, right? That's exactly right. I wonder if we can get back to the big data dump again with, you have been pretty involved in trying to, uh, would it be accurate to call it sort of a fight for transparency with with some of this data here? Well, fortunately, at this point, I think we're we're beyond the fight. This is now public data, even with the repeal Mm -hmm. of the Affordable Care Act, that would not end the disclosure of this information. Everybody recognizes this information is here, at least for a while, and there's no imminent threat to it. So we're past the fight on it. That's good to hear. So what sorts of lessons have been coming out of this this data that we're getting now? I think that the, the key challenge is how do we now begin to apply this to doing more longitudinal research that is going to give us answers to the most pressing questions about the way in which payments correlate with prescribing over the course of time on a drug-by-drug level, and you must have the data to actually do that do that sort of analysis. And now that we do, I think we and others who are at academic institutions are doing that analysis. I think you will see research coming out of that. And then I think that is going to lead to much more 
sort of serious questions about what should be do- what should be done. You know, to a certain extent, we've been behind the eight ball on this because while pharmaceutical companies certainly know exactly how much doctors prescribe and what their return on investment is, for the rest of us, we don't. And so having now data for, at this point, three and a half years and prescribing data for an equal amount of time, we can begin you know, doing some serious research analysis and publishing the results and our methods and the data itself. And I think we'll learn from that. And that's going to, I think, prompt additional steps. But it has to be data-driven. Right. Yeah, the, the data is really important here that we're not just sort of talking in generalities, but we actually have real real data that's open and public that, that people, so anyone can look at it and, and query it and ask, ask questions. I want to go back a little bit to something we talked about, you sort of hinted at earlier, and that is about guidelines and sort of the way that medicine is practiced. Have you done any looking into this about sort of industry ties to treatment guideline panels? There's been a lot of discussion about this issue. Where are we at with this? Well, there's been an enormous body of literature that shows that people who are on treatment writing guideline committees have ties to the makers of drugs that would benefit from the the guidelines they're developing. Uh, there have been efforts by some of these groups to limit the involvement, for example, saying that chairmen of committees can't have particular payments from the interested companies for a certain period of time or that a majority of members of the committee will not have a conflict over a certain period of time. But not all groups have adopted these. And it's still sort of catch-can in the sense that each group sets its own policies. There's no central repository that mandates that a particular group has a particular composition. But it is a concern because these guidelines are used by insurance companies and the government to set payment policies and in situations in which particular drugs are covered or not covered. Uh, and I think at this point, there just is a huge body of research to show that the conflicts in these guideline writing committees are pretty extensive. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of research on that. But then, you know, you talk to some people will argue against some of these rules saying that, you know, if if you can't have people who, who are, you know, the, they'll sort of argue that the people from industry are the ones who understand the drugs or the treatments the best. And, and that if you exclude them from the panels, that you're losing that expertise. Do you think that there's any truth to that sort of argument? Uh, I think that, like I said, from the very beginning, everybody has their own pulling interest. People who don't get payments have mm-hmm. a pulling interest. People who do get payments have a pulling interest. I think the ideal is to find the right mix of individuals so you ensure that you have those interests and that one is not dominating the conversation. Right, right. It's it's really important. And that's that's one reason that it's important to sort of have a diversity on, on the panel as well. A diversity from a lot of different perspectives. And it's not just, you know, payments or not payments. It's geographic diversity. It's diversity in terms of practice settings of doctors. It's diversity in terms of demographics of doctors and gender of doctors. Uh, so it's, it is not just a single payment or no payment uh, diversity. Yeah, absolutely. So talking a little bit more about data, I was curious to know if there's any data that you wish we have that we don't. Like if you could sort of wave a magic wand and get your hands on any data possible, what what would you want? I would say two things, Christy. First, it's been a little bit disappointing. The federal government was set to unveil this past weekend at a major gathering of health researchers some new data on patient patient services and diagnoses in what's called Medicare Advantage plans. And these are the health plans that participate in the Medicare program, but that are not the traditional Medicare fee-for-service. They're operated by private insurers. And the 
the data that the government was going to release to researchers would have enabled them to begin studying the care that they've received for the very first time. And at the last minute, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services made a decision to cancel the session and not release the data. And there's a lot of health researchers who are very concerned and nervous about this. I think we need to know the type of care that's delivered to people who are in Medicare Advantage plans. And I'm hoping that there'll be some resolution where both researchers and the public and journalists will have access to that in the near future. Mm-hmm. The second, The second important group of data that I'd like to see is some data on people's experiences in private insurance plans. And while it is, uh, and this is a little bit different from Medicare, I'm talking about commercial insurance plans, the type of work insurance plans that the majority of Americans get their coverage from, that while it's wonderful to have data about Medicare beneficiaries, many Medicare beneficiaries are not out there having babies right. or they're not children. They're not children having procedures that you'd see in children. They're um, older adults or disabled adults who have their unique constellations of health issues. And it would be really great to start to see public data that enables us to understand the care that's delivered to just those with employer-provided insurance. The last thing is Medicaid, which is the group, the health insurance that's run by the state and federal government for low income. And we have next to no data about the care of Medicaid beneficiaries. And that is within the purview of state and federal government. And a system that they've been working on to create that data is behind schedule. And um, we have not seen any public data from that. So hopefully that will start producing information soon. I know that I and many other uh, non-journalist researchers are waiting for it and uh, ready to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's so many lessons that can be taken from that. And until we see the data, it's just, just sort of speculation, right? Yeah. Show me, the, show me the data. Show me the data. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to switch gears now and ask, this is getting to another topic, though, wondering how the conflict of interest we've been talking about here in medicine compared to the ones that are being discussed now in politics. Are there lessons we can learn for political conflicts of interest to be found in, in these discussions in medicine? Well, it's funny because whenever you write about conflicts of interest in medicine, you always hear from doctors saying, well, why aren't you focusing on how much money politicians get? Um, (laughs) Literally, like every time you do a story, they respond and say that. And I think we we are, right? Lots of people are focusing on the the type of money that's flowing to lawmakers and that that gets a lot more attention than the money that's flowing to doctors. But yeah, I mean, I think similarly, when a politician gets money and a day later makes a decision to sponsor a bill or write a letter to a regulatory authority, it raises a question about why they're doing so and whether the money had an effect. It's similar in medicine in the sense that if you get money and then decide to prescribe something or use a product, questions will arise. And I think doctors would be wise just as politicians to keep that in mind and um, ask themselves, is this really in the patient's best interest? Which is not starting out from a perspective of doubt, but rather always challenging ourselves as we do going through our day-to-day lives about, you know, are we adhering to our own moral compasses? And that's true with or without payments. Right. That that sort of um, sort of raises the question, right, that everyone should be doing this all of the time, that this isn't a matter of people pointing their fingers at other people and saying, you shouldn't be doing this, but that doctors themselves, politicians, journalists should be saying, you know, am I being you know, unduly influenced by outside sources? What what are the influences that are you know, leading me to take this action that I'm taking, right? Right. Well, it's actually interesting because in journalism, we have among the strictest conflict of interest policies that there is, right? I'm not allowed to take any gifts or money or meals or anything because we don't want to even create a perception that that we can be bought. So 
Um, that is a policy that I think many news organizations have and have put in place to avoid this, even the perception of this. And uh, it's something that maybe others should look at. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, the other similarity here, I think, with doctors is this issue of trust. You know, in journalism, trust is such an enormous issue for us, earning and maintaining that trust. And I'd say the same is, is true for doctors, right? I think doctors start off at a higher position of trust right now in society <laughs> than journalists do. And so, um, but that's a treasured thing to have is the trust of the people who, who come to you. And, and it's something which should, nobody should take for granted, doctors or journalists or politicians. Agreed. Agreed. Great. Any parting thoughts? I'm excited that this is a topic that stays in the news. I think for many years, for decades, in fact, conflict of interests were sort of this issue that was always discussed, but it was never real. And now that we have data that lets you look up your own doctor, Mm -hmm. you're able to tell your own story and it makes it much more personal. And so instead of talking about some doctor at Harvard, if you live in Houston, Texas, and you don't really care about that doctor at Harvard, now you can look up your doctor because the question I hear all the time from patients is, yeah, what about my doctor? And now we can answer that question. And so Mm -hmm. that becomes a much more personal issue. And therefore, I don't expect this issue to go away. And I expect that people, as they learn that these tools are available, will continue to use them in greater numbers. Right. And I think, you know, as patients have the opportunity to talk to their own doctors, maybe it will end up being something where this issue is discussed much more widely instead of, you know, sort of just in the halls of academia or in medical journals where it's actually happening in the patient's, you know, in the doctor's yeah, office. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's saying, you know, take the 15-minute office visit and, and not present your problems and instead ask about the doctor's money that they're getting from somewhere else. Right. We should always start from the position of trust. We always advise patients don't start from an accusatory perspective. And But at the same time, if your doctor is unwilling to answer a question about this, you should ask whether that's the doctor you want to see. Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Okay, that was Christy Ashwanden interviewing ProPublica's Charles Ornstein for Sparks, 538's Science Podcast. Thanks to our producers Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, and thanks to Tony Chow and Martin Onebu for production assistance. Katie Ferguson is our editor. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. We do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think by emailing podcasts at 538.com with any comments or suggestions. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>